You are listening to the Dabble Co. Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Claire O'Brien. In healthcare, we have so many questions about what's trending versus what's actually the truth. So on this show, we're going to get to the bottom of it. It's health, it's wellness, it's beauty, explained by the people who actually know what they're talking about. Hey guys, welcome back to the Dabble Co. Podcast. I'm Claire O'Brien, your host and nurse practitioner. And I'm super, super excited this week to be talking to Dr. Mayor Embe. Um, she is an OBGYN, went to Yale and then UT Medical School. And she actually trained um, at my alma mater, Medical University of South Carolina. Um, and we met on the interwebs with... Uh, mutual friends that are doing also equally cool stuff in science, which we'll talk about that later. But hello, Mayor. Thanks for being here, Dr. Embe. Thank you. And feel free to call me Mayor. Um, I'm very excited to be here. Sad we never got to meet while I was in Charleston, but... It, we, really, we really sadly met through our, our friend Hallie um, and our friends at Natalist, which mm-hmm. I'll be checking out. Um, yeah. And kind of started chatting on Instagram, and then it was the COVID times, and then you left, and so and now <laughs> well, here we are on on the on the the podcast. Um, so tell me a little bit about your background. So you went to you, did you run track for Yale? I did. Um, yeah, I was there 20, 2008, 2012, Ran track. Um, loved it. I met some of my best best friends like for life there. Uh-huh. Um, and then ended up going back to Tennessee. My parents are currently there, retired there, and so came back home because med school is very expensive and in-state was a lot cheaper than out-of-state. <laughs> um, also met some wonderful people there that I'm still in touch with and then moved my way down to Charleston and then came up here for work. You're in New York now? hmm in New York, Manhattan. Um, my college friends live up here and I have some extended family up here, so it's kind of nice to be in uh, an urban setting was kind of my goal and I got probably as urban as you can get (laughs) I would say that's that'll do it so where what's your practice like now are you in private practice with a hospital or so I'm in private practice um in a practice that's only gynecology so I don't see any pregnant patients uh-huh. Um, first trimester, I should say. We at least see first trimester patients. Uh-huh. Um, and I'm operating once a week. Um, I'm at two different locations. I'm in Manhattan and in Middle Village. And I operate or will be operating at Flushing Hospital out in Queens and then Lenox Hill here in Manhattan once I get credentialed. <laughs> yeah, which takes forever. Yeah, still going through it. <laughs> So what was your favorite thing about residency that has been different as an attending? Um, I would say as a resident, a lot of the big differences is just that you're never, you're never alone in the sense that there's always someone above you that you can kind of go ask questions to or go get help from. Whereas as an attending, there are more experienced attendings in my practice and just for anyone who's just starting out, there's always somebody who's been there a little longer, but it's, you're operating by yourself. You're seeing patients completely by yourself. Um, so it's a lot more independence right. and it's a bit of a big jump. Cause you go from like your last day of residency where you do get some independence as a chief, but there's still somebody there 
to like now you are the person that someone else might kind of terrifying right Right. Um, (laughs) it's a little bit scary (laughs) so you know I was talking to my the owner of the practice I work at and she was just like my recommendation has always been start off with you know simple cases things that you know you can handle get your feet under you by yourself and then you can kind of start increasing the complexity a little bit Um, and it's nice that for anything super complex I always will have her to come in and help me um, which is something that I've told younger residents like make sure when you go out and get a job you have somebody you can lean on (laughs) yeah good like a mentor friend Yeah. yeah for sure what are you seeing right now like in a predominantly GYN practice what what's the bulk of your practice um, a lot of it, well, right now, because it's COVID, a lot of it is people catching up on their annual visits. <laughs> so everyone's been coming in. We've gotten really, really busy the last couple of weeks as everyone starts to come out more. <clears throat> so we have a lot of those, a lot of irregular periods, irregular bleeding, PCOS. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say the bulk of what we see is irregular bleeding, honestly, though. Um, PCOS, what is that for people who don't know? Um, so PCOS is polycystic ovarian syndrome, uh-huh. um, which can be a cause of irregular periods. Um, we've actually seen most most of the people I've seen actually already know they have it, but just are kind of coming in to talk about treatment options and and or fertility options and things like that. So it's PCOS Awareness Month, mm-hmm. and you've been posting about it a good bit, and I. I you know, when I do, I, every other week I do a 10 questions podcast and I just people ask random questions and I get asked about PCOS a lot and I just don't know very much about it, but it, it seems like to me, it, it must be more common than we realize. And by we, I mean, people who are not GYNs, like how common is it? So the literature will tell you like one in 10, one to two in 10 women has it. Uh-huh. I think in practice, I would argue that it's probably more than that. And we just are getting better at diagnosing it, but haven't gotten, we probably haven't captured all the people who actually have it. But one in 10 is still pretty, pretty common. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or t- two in 10 is. Yeah. Common. yeah. I mean, we see it all the time. I'm sure I see probably a couple patients a day who have PCOS, whether or not they're there for that reason. Um, they still have it. So I think it's honestly very, very common. What are the hallmarks that you see when you're finding people with PCOS? The most common thing we see is irregular periods, um, oh. namely not having them very often. So a lot of people will come in and be like, eh, I have a period every 40 to 50 days or something like that, um, or haven't had it in like six months. Um, and then we also see a lot of women who are, overweight um, or have unwanted hair growth or hair loss, um, kind of in a male pattern. Um, and like then some of them will have growth and then like receding hair or like, like an excessive sideburn or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes it's leg hair that they feel is thicker than they would expect for themselves. Um, and then sometimes they'll come in with actually bald spots or something like that. Um, which is kind of the opposite. So it's a little confusing, but they, and then acne too, usually severe acne that doesn't really respond well to over the counter things, sometimes even to prescription stuff that dermatologists will give them. Um, But we, 
can suspect it, but we have to do an ultrasound to see polycystic ovaries. Which just um, means multiple cysts in the ovaries. Right. Um, and we used to say that 12, 12 cysts per ovary was considered PCOS, but it turns out young women like under the age of 30 and especially teenagers will tend to have a lot of cysts on their ovaries, even if they don't have PCOS. Hmm. So in young women, it's a little harder to tell. Right. Um, but for older women, you're not supposed to have that many cysts. Um, there's a new consensus, consensus out now from, I think, 2015 that changed it and said basically 12 might be too small of a number. And so now the number is closer to 24 cysts on the ovary, which is obviously going to kick out a few people. Um, but we also check hormones as well. Testosterone is a big sign of PCOS. Um, so we have certain levels that we'll see in PCOS patients um, that we're like, that's, you definitely have PCOS um, regardless of the other things. Too much, they um, and, too much testosterone? Um, yeah. So with, I think our, our lab here for my clinic that I work at, we test for testosterone as well as some other hormones, but testosterone is truly like the most important one. Um, cause if that's positive, then we know. Yeah. Huh. And what's, so what would be the treatment for these women? The first thing I always start with is lifestyle changes. Um, and that really just for PCOS anyways, entails diet and exercise. Um, cause you can get a lot of relief of these symptoms with diet and exercise alone. Um, and I'm a big believer in trying to stay away from medicine if you don't need it. Um, so a lot of times I'll kind of go through exercise, especially, um, because exercise alone will actually help a lot of women change some of the metabolic changes that we see with PCOS without being on any kind of medication um, and specifically weight training since mm -hmm. that is probably the fastest way that we see for women to lose fat and gain muscle and change those parameters. And then diet is a little bit more of a difficult beast because everyone expects like there's a PCOS diet, but there really isn't. There's just what works for you. And the research, there's been tons of research on this. And so far they found people who do well on all sorts of different diets. The only big overarching thing we found is that you want to limit your carbs and you want to increase your protein. Now, to what degree you do that depends on what you, you can maintain and what works for you. But it's not like you need to do this set number of carbs and this set number of proteins and fats and things and it's going to work for you. Interesting. I, my friend, I don't, do you follow, you know, Lauren Maniker? She's, yeah, I do. Yeah. She's, she posted some, a few things about it. Um, and it was, it's super interesting, um, how, you know, food really can be helpful in, in symptoms mm -hmm. like, so it's, it sounds like it's not even a, a weight issue per se with the diet. It's kind of a cycle because yeah. the PCOS itself affects sugar metabolism, which makes it harder for women who have PCOS to lose weight. And then, of course, if you're having a hard time losing weight, that's frustrating and that can take a toll on you mentally. And then you might be like, well, 
this is just how it is and give up, um, which can lead to more weight gain. And, you know, it just kind of is a terrible cycle. And so I'm just like, you have to understand it's not going to fall off of you like it might from your friend who doesn't have PCOS. And it's not because you're doing something wrong. It's just that this is the nature of this particular beast. And so do you end up putting people on what, like a birth control sometimes or what kind of medicines? Yeah. Our biggest medicine, or our first line medication is birth control pills, specifically because with PCOS, like I mentioned before, you can have really irregular periods where you're not having them very often. And while for some women, that's great, (laughs) not having a period sounds wonderful. Um, Our big concern with that is that without shedding the lining inside the uterus, which is what a period is, it's just shedding that lining each month, Mm -hmm. your lining is getting thicker. And as that lining gets thicker, there's a higher chance of uterine cancer. Mm -hmm. And so we put people on birth control pills specifically to control that. We want that lining to be shed on a regular basis, even if it's not every month, because I put some patients on continuous birth control for three months at a time. Um, if they want to have a period less frequently, that's totally fine. But we just want you to have at least three to four periods a year. Oh, what if you have an IUD and you never have a period? So like an IUD, the IUD works by not allowing that lining to grow. There we go. Okay. So we, either we want your lining not to grow and then that's fine. But if you're going to allow that lining to grow, we need it to shed at some point. Okay. Okay. So I'm Absolutely. Yeah. So. Um, huge fan of my marina and haven't mm-hmm. had a period in years and it is oh yeah same okay. but it works differently so it's fine so even with PCOS some patients are like I don't want to take a pill every day and mm-hmm. marina is totally fine for them yeah let's talk about birth control a little bit and some birth control myths that you see um what do you think how do you feel about birth control cleanses uh, <laughs> so, uh, I am not a fan I think it's a ploy, um, but birth control in general works kind of in the time that you have it. So typically, as soon as you take out an IUD, stop a birth control pill or a patch, your body itself is a system that cleanses itself. So there's no need for us to put in more things to cleanse it. Um, we have a liver, we have a kidney. As long as those things work for you, it's going to cleanse whatever you've got in your system. Mm-hmm. Um, I think most birth control cleanses are a placebo effect, honestly, and they don't really do anything and you're wasting your money. Um, the only birth control that we give that will sometimes affect fertility after you've used it is the depot shot in the sense mm-hmm. that it takes a little bit more time for your body to clear out that depot shot, um, which makes sense because the depot shot lasts right, three months. Exactly. So if you get a shot, you know, for that three months, you're you're um, on the birth control technically. But even after those three months, a lot of times it takes a little bit more time for the ovaries to kick back in and go back to normal. So I always tell people, if you're planning to get pregnant within the next year or two, the depo shot might not be for you because it might take a while from when you get that last shot to get back to totally regular period. But every other birth control, as soon as you're off of it, you're good. Why I, you know, and I know, so some people really can't or shouldn't whatever take hormonal birth control for different reasons. Like women, women with, you know, migraines with aura, I had to really try and 
figure out whether or not I have significant migraines. And I'm like, okay, do I have aura? I don't think that I do because I I was switching, but or you know, stroke risk, breast Mm -hmm. cancer risk, those those types of things. But what do you think is making this movement towards making women feel bad about using hormonal birth control? I honestly don't understand it, Um, especially since we use birth control for a lot more than just birth control. I I kind of wish we came up with a different name Um, because we mentioned earlier with PCOS, we're using it honestly as a cancer prevention treatment. Mm -hmm not necessarily birth control in that sense. Um, we use it a lot of times to treat hormonal acne. Yeah. Um, for women with um, endometriosis, birth control pills are lifesavers in terms of controlling their pain and their bleeding um, each month. And so it's frustrating when you hear people denouncing it as if it's some terrible drug that's going to hurt the women who take it. Um, when it's been around for decades um, and Honestly, any medication you take has a risk, but we try to be very clear about what those risks are. Um, I would never give birth control to somebody who had, or at least estrogen-based birth control to somebody who had a clot in the past or has, like you said, migraines with aura. Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of assessing the risks and benefits of any medicine that you take. Um, And I think that takes a conversation with your provider, going through your history, knowing what your family history is as well, and what types of things would work for you. Um, I do think that a lot of it is coming not necessarily from women themselves, but just expectations from society, from kind of social media and things like that. And a lot of that misinformation that's being passed around, like things about birth control cleanses and things like that, Um, If you read enough of that, you're going to believe that birth control is bad for you and that you should steer clear of it um, when it's such a great tool in terms of family planning and treating symptoms outside of just um, pregnancy prevention. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think then it makes people really kind of shy away from that whole world. And and when in, in reality, if you really don't want a hormonal birth control, there are several options for you, right? I mean, like, and even now there's a brand new, what is it? Is it foam gel thing that just came out? I mean, there, there's options for you, you know? Yeah, there's a lot of options. Um, it just depends on what people want in terms of their birth control because we have things like the Paragard IUD, which is a copper IUD, normal, lasts up to 10 years. And that's something that's great for someone who wants long-term birth control and doesn't want to have to remember to take a pill every day. Um, There's progesterone-only options for patients who do have migraines, have high blood pressure, or a stroke risk, Um, since the estrogen component is what we worry about in those patients. That's what actually increases your risk, but progesterone alone is totally safe. Um, And there's progesterone-only pills. There's the next one on, which is the implant in the arm that's only progesterone. All the IUDs are only progesterone. Um, So there's a lot of different options, and it's just knowing what those options are and figuring out what's going to work for you. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, Let's take a left and talk about, because I don't know how to, like, casually segue into this, but it's really, (laughs) I think it's really important to hear your thoughts on it. So, um, 
there has obviously been a tremendous amount and you, your, your resources. So if you guys aren't following Mayor, her account is at sweat and scalpels. And when everything was happening with George Floyd and protests and you put together incredible resources on racism in medicine. I mean, and, and just in general and just the history of everything and, but particularly in medicine and, and then even more so within your own field of OBGYN um, and fortunately, not fortunately, but I think Serena Williams having a complication after birth really shed light on the issue of increased maternal mortality after, after childbirth, because, you know, you would think she's pretty famous and probably right. had some of the top care in the universe. So, I mean, right. I don't know, but I've been just, just guessing. And yet here she is having a really serious complication after, after giving birth. And anyway, so I just, I just wanted to, you know, talk to you about that and yeah. your, you know, what you think. Yeah. So, um, like you said, kind of when all of that happened, I felt compelled to kind of share a lot of the information that black people in general know about already because you're living it, um, and that other people might not be aware of. And one of those things is how different, healthcare in America is for black people and especially for black women when it comes to pregnancy and childbirth. Um, a lot of it stems to be frank from racism of providers that they may or may not be aware of. Um, and in talking to my colleagues, cause I was still a resident at the time. So I was talking to my fellow residents and my attendings. A lot of them weren't aware of how certain things might affect their patients. Um, and I think part of it is that you're not experiencing it. So it's hard for you to put right. yourself in the spot and think about it because it's just not something you've ever had to worry about. Whereas for someone like me, I've always grown up being aware from what my parents have told me and just lived experiences that I have to act a certain way because people already expect me to be a certain way just from looking at me. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of times you're, you've had, you're living under the stress of like, well, I don't want to be a stereotype. Um, but at the same time, you want to be just who you are. Um, but like, I've had situations where I can't, I feel like I can't speak up because I don't want to be labeled as this angry black woman. Yeah. But I feel like I'm justified, but I still might be put into that box. Um, and for patients, a lot of times they don't have someone to advocate for them in that sense. Like they might come into the office and have a complaint and they'll bring it up, have it dismissed. And you or I might, might feel strongly enough to kind of be like, hold up, like, this is a real problem. I need you to take it seriously. Whereas Mm -hmm. these patients might feel like, well, maybe they're right and they'll just let it drop. Um, And given that black women in the U.S. are three to four times more likely to have a death related to pregnancy, I think it's important for them to know that they should speak up about symptoms and things that are going on specifically in that space and also outside of pregnancy too. Um, I think it's just a lot of times you're trying to be a certain way And if you don't have the medical literacy on top of that, you're just going to trust what your doctor says, but your doctor might be somebody who 
isn't thinking about your health in the larger context of racism in medicine, racism in the U.S. Yeah. What do you think, it's hard, I mean, what do you think we do as providers, you know, like other than, it's it's hard because when you, when you're like, gosh, well, I don't, I don't feel like I'm racist, but the statistics right. are there, you know, like three, if you, you know, three or three to four times higher mortality rate is totally unacceptable. I mean, if you said, if you took it, if you took it out of the context of people and just said, this procedure has a three to four times higher death rate than this procedure. Right. And they're the same. Yeah. Well, then you wouldn't do the other procedure anymore. So it's like, right, exactly. what, do we, what do we do? Do we, do we pivot completely and, and give a different, I mean, I, yeah, I guess you, you kind of need to give a different level or intense, more scrutinized level of care to your black patients. Right. I think one of the most important things you think are your, yeah, I think one of the most important things as providers that we can do Mm -hmm. is a, be aware that even if you might not actively be racist, there might still be racist tendencies that have come from just being raised in a country that institutionally and historically is racist. Right. Um, And being aware of that in and of itself kind of elevates your care for these patients a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, Another part of it is holding other people accountable for things that they might do or say that are either overtly racist or kind of subtly racist. Um, so in the OBGYN world, and obviously I'm not trying to match or build, but there is a tendency for people to comment on how many kids somebody might have or how closely a pregnancy follows another, um, which that that's your personal opinion or my personal opinion on a patient. Um, mm-hmm. And it's not really my place to do that. And a lot of times I have felt like those comments are more common with patients of color, whether they're black, Hispanic, or anything else. Um, Those comments are just a little bit more common in that setting. Mm -hmm. Um, And that right there to me is like, well, why do you feel that way for this patient, but you don't feel that, you didn't say something like that about this patient. Um, And that's something where I feel like we, as a whole, can do a better job in being like, stop that, what you're saying there let's unpack that because that's not right. Um, And a lot of times it's uncomfortable. It's going to be uncomfortable. That person might get defensive. You might lose some friends in the process, but those are the types of people that need to understand how what they're saying can lead to them providing worse care because you're sitting there judging a person Mm -hmm. and you might inadvertently express that in the way that you're taking care of them. You might take longer to go take their vitals. You might ignore their complaints. You might um, just not take them as seriously. Mm -hmm. And those two things, I think, are kind of the smallest, easiest way for people to just at least start trying to address this. I think there's a lot that needs to be done at a systemic level that is more than one person as a provider can do, but that as a group of providers, we can do like holding your own hospital accountable for a lot of these things, trying to focus a lot of our efforts on getting black patients 
to follow up, see providers more often, because a lot of times Black patients just don't trust the medical system, which you can't really blame them for when you look at the history of experimentation on Black people without their consent or their knowledge with Black women being sterilized um, without their knowledge. Um, I I can understand why they would be like, I mean, if I don't feel sick, I'm not going to go to the doctor. Like, why would I trust them? Yeah, definitely. No, that makes sense. It's a, it's been an interesting year, you know, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even I'm, I messaged you about something early on and then was, you know, hearing my black friends and say like, Hey, it's not my job to like answer your questions about like, is this okay? Or is it not okay? Or whatever. And I was like, Oh my God, I didn't, you don't even realize. I'm like, I don't even realize that's like mentally, like that's putting a lot on, on you. You know, it's like, yeah. I, I you just don't even, because we don't understand, I will never understand, right? Like I will literally never understand what it feels like to be discriminated against in that way, whether it's overt or not, you know, I, I'll just, I'll never know. I mean, I, the only thing I could even compare it to is being a woman versus, you know, not being a woman, but just not the same. Um, yeah. So I, it's a lot. It's, it's hard to navigate. Um, and I had a lot of friends who, and I am happy to help, but I know that I have other friends who were like, I just, I need to step back. I can't, I can't answer these questions for people. Like I'm already yeah. drained mentally, emotionally. Um, and I think it's on for white people who have black friends and would like their opinion on things the first thing to do is just ask them if they're willing to answer questions. Um, right. Cause I mean, I, I did provide all that information on my profile. And then after I was done, I was like, I need a break. <laughs> like yeah. I need to not answer questions for a bit. Cause it, it is draining, but it's something that I think is important. And there are black Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, people who are out there who are providing that information, who are doing it for free on a regular basis. And those people kind of speak for the rest of us who sometimes are tired and don't want to talk about it. Yeah. Um, and most of the time, much more eloquently than I could put it, go through kind of the things that um, as a non-Black person that you need to know if you're trying to help battle racism in America and in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for bringing that together. If y'all, if you haven't looked at it, it's, uh, you have it saved, right? In a highlight. Yeah. It's all in the highlights. Mm-hmm. Go check it out. It's a lot of incredible information and um, historical information and resources. And I shared a lot of it, but that was months ago. And um, if you weren't following either one of us then, then go go look at that because it's amazing. One other thing that you have shared in your highlights and stories that has been a very big hit, I think, is your information on the female orgasm. So we can pivot and talk about that because there's also... Not a good segue into that either. There's not. And here we are. But it, so I loved reading all of that. It was so interesting to me because it's, I don't think we give ourselves credit for mm-hmm. it being so much more complicated for women. Yeah. Right. And like oh. libido, people wanted to know about libido and all of that. I mean, what, so Let's talk about libido first before we even go down the road further. <laughs> um, so 
Libido is a very complicated thing, um, both in men and women, honestly, but especially in women, because there's a little bit more, it seems there's a little bit more of a mental, emotional component to it. Right. For women. Um, and so depending on life stressors and other things, libido will change. Um, and even throughout your menstrual cycle, your libido might change. So this week's episode is brought to you again by my favorite place, Celadon. Um, if you are in Charleston, it's in Mount Pleasant. And if you're not, then you can go to celadonathome.com. So Celadon has 20 to 50% off all of their chairs right now. Any chair, all the chairs. If you need anything for your house, go check out Celadon. Um, so there, it's always in flux um, and through different times of life, like after menopause, a lot of times libido will kind of drop off. For some women, not all. Um, and that's something that a lot of women are like, what is wrong with me that I don't want to do this thing that is supposed to be enjoyable, supposed to be fun for me, and I just don't want to. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially for young women, that it's a big concern for them. And it ends up being a vicious cycle where you might have a, a, a little bit of time where your libido is low. And then you're like, well, what's wrong with me? And then you're thinking about the fact that your libido is low. So then your libido can't come back up because you're freaking out about your libido. (laughs) Um, And so it ends up being a stressor on a stressor. And a lot of times if we see patients who have complaints about libido, the first thing we do is literally just talk because we kind of have to figure out what is going on in your life that Uh can be contributing to this. Um, obviously we want a history in terms of, you know, diet, exercise, sleep schedule, things like that, that can change, um, your stress levels and things like that. But specifically if there's been like a life event, 2020, obviously in and of itself is a large stressor for people (laughs) with everything that's been going on. So, um, it's not surprising that we've actually had a few, or I've had a few more patients coming in with being like, I just am not in the mood ever. Um, and I think, it's important, I think it's important to not beat yourself up about it because it's not, nothing is wrong. It's just that you probably have more important things to think about a lot of times. Um, but it doesn't help when your partner, male or female, still has their libido and you feel like you owe them something. And that's also part of it is we don't owe a partner sex you don't owe them sex so if you're not in the mood it should be you should be with a partner who is willing to understand that if we you have something that's going on mm-hmm. if you don't owe me sex we can work on this together so um, but a lot of times people come in and haven't told their partner and they're just like I think something's wrong with me I can't I can't sleep with them and I don't want them to leave me so do you feel like I was going to say, do you check hormones even? Like, do you, do you feel like it's predominantly external stressors or, or is there, can there be Most an external time, it, We don't find anything on labs. I generally labs aren't that useful. Huh. Um, every once in a while you might, um, for postmenopausal women, you, you can check hormones, but I mean, it just shows, you know, if they're postmenopausal. Um, and so with lower estrogen in that setting, we know that that affects libido and that affects um, 
uh, vaginal dryness and things like that that also contribute to making sex enjoyable. And so in that setting, the hormones just kind of confirm what we suspect, but they don't necessarily add or change to my management. That's so interesting. So you do like, you recommend like cognitive behavioral therapy or? Usually we start with that. Um, We actually at our clinic have a, a PA who is focused on kind of sexual health. Um, And so she's somebody that I refer patients to um, who have either painful sex, especially after having children, um, who just have really low, persistently low libido, um, things that are a little bit more long-term. But generally, I I start with telling people, here are some things you can do at home on your own that can kind of help. Um, And then we can kind of move into other measures and things but a lot of it is honestly very very much like external stressors causing internal stress to the patient Mm. that is super interesting because I think we always want there to be an issue we really always want there to be a hormone issue you know women are asking constantly to can I get you know I got to get my hormones checked and I love one time I was talking to Marta Perez and she's like since when are our hormones not supposed to be a roller coaster? Like they're hormones. Right. They're, yeah, they're going to change. That, you know, all the time. So anytime we make that graph, it's always. All over the place. So we're talking about balancing hormones and it's a joke. Right. Like, there is no balance. I mean, your hormones are not supposed to be balanced. So yeah, it's super interesting. I think we really want there to be an actual issue with uh, there is an actual issue. We want there to be a, a treatable medical, like metabolic right. issue. And they're right. just something you can just done. treat with medicine and be done. Yeah. That would be easier, but it's, it would be. It's just not Unfortunately, we're, we're not that lucky. <laughs> also on that same line, you pub, you posted some really cool information about um, female orgasm and just how much different it can be and how much more complicated it can be. And I was, like fascinated by it. I mean, and when I shared it, I had so many women reach out to me and say, Oh my God, that was so helpful. Like I've never read anything about that before. Cause it's just, we're kind of afraid to talk about it. You know, like you said, I mean, it's very taboo and, but Mary and I were talking before we started recording and, and we were just talking about, you know, there's commercials for Viagra and, and yet we're afraid to even talk about this as women, like even in the office. Yeah. Yeah. Even in the office, I feel like a lot of times people will like whisper (laughs) and I'm always just like, literally, this is my job. So (laughs) don't worry. Okay. And it shouldn't be something that you're embarrassed about. Everyone's doing it. So, (laughs) um, but I think, um, I, I actually had a patient recently who, who was just like, I, I just don't feel like I've been able to orgasm. Like I, have in the past um and it had only been like maybe two weeks of symptoms or whatever but I was just like it's only been two weeks <laughs> mm-hmm. you have to give yourself time you have to forgive yourself and give yourself a little bit of time to kind of um get back into things if it was fine two weeks ago there's probably something going on that's stressing you out or that's um a little bit more on the forefront of your mind. Mm -hmm. And usually what I tell people is you should take your partner out of the equation in that setting to try and figure out what's going on. 
Um, Because a lot of times there's external pressure from having a partner there. You're like, I need to perform essentially. And it shouldn't be about performing. It should be about your own pleasure. Mm -hmm. And so if there's an issue, I tell people, start off by just taking some time by yourself. Get a toy or use your hands and kind of focus on yourself and kind of figure out, am I having trouble with this even when I'm on my own and I'm relaxed and there's nobody there to um, put pressure on me? Or is this more so related to having the pressure of somebody else being there? Um, And then we kind of go from there. Yeah, that's super interesting. You should definitely, you definitely need to go and check out her her highlight on that because it is just, I think it's helpful. It's broken down um, anatomically and, you know, about exactly what you're saying, just the the mental game of it, you know, and anyway, it's really, it's super interesting. Um, Well, Mayor, I know you have to take your dog to the vet because he's got the trots. Um, Sorry. (laughs) But thank you for talking this morning. This was so fun and really great. And where, so tell people where all they can find you. Um, so in terms of the internet, um, I'm on Instagram as Slut and Scalpels. Um, I also contribute to Natalist Co., which is like an infertility company. Uh, on their website, I write a couple articles for their blog here and there. And then here in New York, I'm seeing patients at Walk-In GYN Care in Manhattan, which is on 57th Street, and also at um, their clinic down in Metropolitan Village, which is in Queens. Happy to see new patients for anyone who's in New York. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Good. All right. Well, we'll do it again. And as always, guys, if you like the episode, if you like hearing from medical professionals who can really give you evidence-based information and science-backed answers, please rate, review, subscribe, share, send it to your friends. That's how people find our podcast and that's how we can get more guests and give you better answers. And as always, shoot me a message um, at thedabbleco at gmail.com or shoot me a message on Instagram. I want to hear from you and hear what you want to hear about and who you want to see. Thanks guys. See you next week.